Well, good morning. It's great to be in the house of the Lord this morning. And it's my privilege to uh, accept the duty in the pulpit this morning as Pastor Jeff is away. My sermon title is The Long War. The Long War. And this title uh, represents my attempt to capture both the severity and the lifelong, everyday nature of the Christian's war within the heart. The battle between flesh and spirit, a battle that rages within us. And will continue to rage within us until God is through sanctifying us and takes us home to glory. So if I do well this morning, I think you'll see why the long war works as a descriptor. But let's begin our time together with a word of prayer. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that our message time this morning would be fruitful. As we open your perfect word, I pray this would be your message to those assembled here. And by the power of your spirit, hearts would be open to receiving Holy Scripture. Lord, this message is lifted up to you as an act of love, obedience, and worship. And I pray that I would neither add to nor take anything away from your perfect truth for us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to uh, the New Testament book of Galatians, specifically Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 25. And uh, we want to look carefully at this passage. This is Apostle Paul's inspired epistle. It was written to the churches that he had planted in Galatia. And of course, we trust here at Anchorage Grace Church that this comes down to us inerrant by God's grace and providential care over the millennia. And as you find that passage in your Bibles or on your phone, allow me to offer up an introductory allegory that may help set a proper tone of seriousness as we begin our examination of what is a sobering subject, the battle between flesh and spirit. And it really characterizes our sanctification. This war is about our sanctification. Let me just to explain what sanctification is, and then we'll go into the allegory. Sanctification is a doctrinal term describing God at work in and through the regenerate Christian, the regenerate Christian, living short of glory in a yet sin-cursed world, but working out his salvation in fear and trembling, as Paul describes in Philippians 2.12. And it is God achieving his perfect will in and through us, while we make daily choices while we fight daily against the temptations of the flesh and for the strength, power, and guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's about dependence on God. So here's the allegory. Here's the allegory. It was a very cold winter day, like today. A large animal carcass resting on an ice floe floated slowly down the great Niagara River towards the immense and powerful Niagara Falls. A majestic eagle flying overhead spied an easy meal below and descended upon it. And the bird began to eat. But as he did, the current of the river began accelerating the ice flow almost imperceptibly at first toward the towering falls. Of course, this mighty eagle could at any time stretch forth his great wings and fly to safety. He could at the very brink of the falls leap to the safety of the air as he had done a thousand times before. So he continued to feed. He wanted to grab all he could in the time that he had. And as he feasted his mind and body on what had come so easily, the water of the river began pushing the flow faster and faster and closer and closer to the falls until the roar of the falls began to echo through the canyon. 
the eagle gorged, waiting to fly off until the very mists of the falls began rising above his head. Finally, he stretched forth his great wings to fly. But unknown to him, his talons sunk into the frozen flesh of his prey, had also sunk into the ice of the flow and had frozen, stuck there in a manner anchoring him, if only for a few critical moments to an unanticipated fate. He struggled, trying to free himself as the raging water raced him to the precipitous drop of the falls. But alas, he could not escape. And the flow with eagle attached hurtled over the falls and into the chaos of the rocks and froth below. Eagle had waited too long to choose flying to freedom over feeding his appetite. Well, that's a tragic image I've planted in your mind, sorry. But we live in a fallen world, and we live in a dangerous world, and we make decisions, and we make choices every single day as we travel through this fallen world. And all of these choices produce outcomes, consequences, and everyone, all of us, all people, Christians and unbelievers alike, want good outcomes. Nobody wants to choose something and get a bad outcome, right? And so everyone is searching for how to achieve good outcomes, I would argue. And as Christians, we trust in the truth of the gospel and Holy Scripture to give us right understandings and the decision framework that we need on a day-to-day basis. And our lesson today offers truth and warnings that come with that truth. And when God's word warns us, we should pay close attention. So listen for the warnings as I read Galatians 5, 16 to 25. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. And the works of the flesh, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Well, this is is a deep passage that most of you, if not all of you, are probably familiar with. But here's the thing. I'm guessing that your familiarity... Uh, Where your mind goes is more easily to the fruit of the spirit part, not so much the works of the flesh part. A lot of good Christian households, my own included, probably have some form of a framed fruit of the spirit wall hanging or such, or at least a refrigerator magnet, right? But by contrast, I'm guessing not too many of you have the works of the flesh framed anywhere in your house and on prominent display. But I want you to see this morning that The sanctifying doctrinal truth of this passage only emerges when we put the proper emphasis on and gain the right understanding of both realities, the works of the flesh and and 
the fruit of the Spirit. And so we're going to spend some time unpacking the unpleasant works of the flesh part this morning. But we're going to do that uh, before we transition and end with magnificent hope for believers in Christ Jesus. So we're going to go downward and first to see the everyday battle and the consequences that defeat can bring. And then we're going to soar upward again as we consider not just the situational fruit the Christian can bear in this world through the power of the Holy Spirit, but also sanctification, this wonderful progression of God conforming us to be like Christ. So let's begin our parabolic ride for you math majors out there. We're going to go down, hit bottom, and then come back up again. So this passage rightly discerned invokes a sense of contrast or conflict of opposing forces of alternative outcomes. And this makes sense because Paul's letter to the churches that he had planted in Galatia, it was written to them in a time and a context of deep and painful doctrinal conflict that was going on within the fledgling assemblies. Paul wrote to the Galatians to counter Judaizing false teachers who were undermining the central new covenant doctrine of justification by faith alone. These false teachers were boldly ignoring the express decree of the Jerusalem council, and they were spreading a dangerous teaching that Gentiles must first become Jewish converts and therefore submit to all of the Mosaic law. And they had to do that before they could become followers of the risen Christ, Christians. And Paul was just shocked by the Galatians' openness to this, to this damaging grace plus works heresy. And so he wrote to confront them and to, among other things, vigorously defend justification by faith alone. We're going to talk about justification in just a minute. So this epistle in its aggregate, its message from chapter one through chapter six brought warnings, brought dire warnings and uh, warnings of consequences of abandoning the essential truths of the grace alone, faith alone in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone gospel. An interesting side note, in uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, this is the only epistle Paul wrote that does not contain, contain a commendation to the church. In other words, Paul didn't include something positive or nice in his salutation, which is his style. I think the rather obvious omission probably reflects how urgently Paul felt about confronting deflection, ongoing Defection, I should say, and how determined he was to defend the essential doctrine of justification. So what we have here is a context of conflict at the 30,000-foot view for this epistle. And then we see explicit conflict, an ongoing war in the heart, if you will, between right and wrong, truth and error, sin and righteousness, good and evil, indeed, between flesh and spirit, flesh and spirit. We'll see that as we fly a little of the text. So let's descend in altitude and look at verses 16 to 17. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It's really important to see right away that Paul is addressing believers here. He's addressing believers, the genuinely converted who are beneficiaries of saving faith. They are those called by God 
who by grace responded through faith in the risen Christ and who are permanently, permanently sealed by the Holy Spirit and indwelled with the Holy Spirit by God's sovereign action at conversion. Sealed by the Spirit and dwelled with the Spirit, it's permanent. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 says, and let me read this carefully, in him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Second Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 2, puts it this way. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as what? A guarantee, a guarantee. So Paul is addressing converted believers. Moreover, believers are, again, by faith alone, justified. Justified, which means what exactly? Well, justification is a legal term. Justification is a legal description of the permanent transaction wherein a believer's sin guilt is credited to Christ on the cross by faith, while Christ's righteousness is, in exchange, credited to that believer. If you're a Christian, we believe this. And so by faith, we're justified. By faith, we're justified. And that was Paul's audience in Galatia, and that is you, and that is me today. Praise God. Justification by faith. And so to put it all together, this exchange, this breathtaking act of grace alone, commonly referred to as the great exchange, is permanent salvation. Really important to hear that. It's permanent. Turn quickly to Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. It's a long passage, but I'm going to read it. And put some emphasis where I think the lesson comes out. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Three things ought to just jump off the page to you in my reading of this verse. One, the centrality of God in salvation. His grace, his sovereignty, his actions. Two, our response is to believe. 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 Faith alone. And three, the entire point is to bring glory to God. To God goes the glory in all of this. Now, permanent salvation comes with another incredible promise, which is God himself operating as the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, taking up residence in the believer's now faithful, sealed, saved heart. To what? Why does God do this? Well, it's to, to inform 
our lives and our doctrine throughout the rest of our temporal life. It's the power by which we're sanctified. And all of this with the astonishing goal of being conformed to be like his son. That's the whole point of it. He's making us like Christ, the second member of the Trinity. And all this brings glory to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Glory. This is all really good news, right? This is the good news. This is the gospel. It's great news. Euangelion in the Koine Greek. So what's the problem? Why, why the tone of conflict? Why, why the, we've got to transition into all this sin stuff? Why the warnings about flesh and spirit warring and the follow-on distasteful list that I read and we'll look at again? Well, even given our permanent salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit now indwelling in our hearts, it's real. It's there. He's there. Scripture tells us that we still have a really big problem to contend with in this fallen world. Until God takes us home to glory, we have a sin nature that we have to contend with. We have to contend with our flesh, which is an inheritance from Adam who fell. And we have a flesh nature that produces desires in us to sin with the goal of elevating ourselves. And when we sin, which is transgressing against God's standards and his holy, righteous nature. And when we sin, we produce consequences. There's always consequences when we make decisions and we take a path of sin or we take a path of righteousness. Path of sin is going to produce consequences. And these are the flesh. These are the works of the flesh, which are negative. So Paul narrates this, his own struggle. I read this earlier. This is from Romans 7, verse 19. When he says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So verse 16 of our passage, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And there we have right off the bat, Paul gives us the book answer to denying the flesh. The most important part. It is walking by the spirit or as it says in Ephesians 518 is to be filled with the spirit. Well, how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we do this every day? Well, Pastor John MacArthur said it this way. To be filled with the spirit is to be under his total domination and control. It requires the death of self-selfishness and the slaying of self-will. To be filled with God's spirit is to be filled with his word. His word. That's what we have. We believe this is God's word. And we are... And as we are filled with his word, it controls our thinking and our action. So you have to see that there's intentionality demanded here. There's decision making. There's judgment going on as the believer walks daily and weighs life situations and circumstances and makes choices. How many choices do we make every day? Hundreds, hundreds. And they all have consequences. Some minor, I brush my teeth or I don't brush my teeth. Hopefully we all brush our teeth every day or bigger ones, bigger ones. I'm going to watch that. I'm going to not watch that. All have consequences. So at face value, you're probably tempted to say, okay, I got this. I got this. I'm hearing it. I'm hearing Steve preach. I'm hearing John MacArthur. I'll just walk by the spirit with a little help from John, right? Well, Intentionality, at least on our own strength, it would seem doesn't really work all that well. 
Let's just be honest. Day to day, we're up and down. Verse 17 supplies the essence of the long war. This is the challenge. It says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Well, verse 16 motivates. Verse 17 starts to feel daunting, if not exhausting, doesn't it? Well, what is the power source to fight and win? That is the key question. What is the power source? Is it our own strength? Is it our own way? Well, I want to show you this morning that our own strength will always fail us, but that complete victory comes with complete dependence on God. Let me repeat that. Our own strength will always fail us, but complete dependence on God will lead us to victory. Look at verse 18. There is a really important declaration there that assures us of something really important. What? As believers, we're not under the law. And this means we fight our sin nature and happen to fail. God still sees Christ's righteousness imputed to us. That's what he sees. Our sins are paid for in full. Look at the wording. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Well, here's a really crucial truth that I want to just put some emphasis on. You cannot be led by the Spirit if you're not a believer. Those verses I read about conversion. If you're not sealed by the Spirit and indwelled with the Spirit and therefore justified by faith alone, you are under the law. You are under the law. And if you're not a believer and under the law, you are what? You're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. As it says in Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Put bluntly, a spiritually dead person cannot walk by the spirit. All right, we're at an important crossroads in the message. Please tune in. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, the authentic Savior of the world, the words that you need to hear this morning are summed up in the second half of verse 21, where Paul warns, Paul emphatically warns the reader, I warn you, he says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, the kingdom of God is made manifest in eternity with God. Now, inheriting the kingdom of God means both physical and spiritual death, not inheriting it. means physical and spiritual death for the unbeliever. What does that mean? It's eternal separation from God. That should shock you. That should scare you. That should bother you. It should make you want to pray about your own salvation and about the salvation of others. So please, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or if you're not sure, please trust that God sovereignly brought you here. And that you've heard the truth of the gospel. Romans ten seventeen says, So by faith, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And you are hearing God's word today, and it's no accident. It is his sovereign will for you. Come by faith and be saved. We are a gospel church. We're giving the gospel. It's life. It's necessary. All right. Well, let's look now at verses 18 through 21 in terms of what they mean to the converted Christian. 
the converted Christian, sealed by the Spirit, indwelled with the Holy Spirit, the justified believer, that was Paul's audience in Galatians. So, talking to believers. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And it's a long list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So we know as believers we can choose to walk in the Spirit, and we are by grace, not under the law, permanently. So we have to ask, can a Christian really do these things? Does that list apply to me? It's an ugly list. We would all agree. Why is it here? Well, we know. We know. That yes, we as believers are still capable of succumbing to not just a few of these, but we're susceptible to choose any or all of these desires of the flesh. And in all manner of degrees. Let me show you why this is true and hence why Paul put it here in his inspired work. The sinful nature that is within us, as one author put it, wants us to be our own Savior and Lord. Our sinful nature nature wants to put ourselves on the throne. Self-salvation, if you will. This is what I was referring to when I asked about living the Christian life on your own strength. The Greek word for flesh is sarks, and the sarks heart of the unbeliever, as we've already said, functions under the law. It rejects the free gifts of Christ's righteousness and continues to seek its own way. Its own salvation, and I think you'll see that everywhere today. I'm not against football, rooting for the Chiefs. But on Super Bowl Sunday in our culture, there's going to be a lot of Sark's heart going on. We're going to see it everywhere. However, this, this same writer asserts that the Sark's or the flesh pull on the Christian heart. So we have unbelieving hearts, and then we have believing hearts, Sealed with the spirit hearts, indwelled with the spirit hearts. The desire underneath all of the believer's sins, the motive for our post-conversion disobedience, believers, is always at its root a similar fundamental lack of trust in God's grace or goodness. And therefore a desire to protect and guard our own lives through a slightly more sanctified self-salvation than that of the unbeliever. We want to put ourselves on the throne. Let me repeat that. The Sark's pull on the Christian heart, the desire underneath all sins, the motive for our disobedience is always a lack of trust in God's grace or goodness and a desire to protect and guard our own lives through self-salvation. This is synonymous with pride. Pride. This is the root problem. We know better than God. I like that explanation. Actually, I don't like it because it hits my own heart and it's convicting. But I wholly agree with it. All right. Well, in light of the Christian's battle, this daily long war between flesh and spirit within our hearts, emanating from confidence in human effort, pride, emanating from pride, which is a failing to fully trust God to give us what is best and sufficient and instead seeking to protect or add something to our lives through self-salvation motivations let me just make this assertion. I'm going to describe a path. It's, it's a series, it's a chain of events. 
that the Christian goes down, and it's this. We want things God has not given us. We believe we can and should go and get them apart from God's guidance or power. We then make choices. We talk ourselves into these choices, and then these choices bring consequences. And these consequences are negative. It's a snowballing effect. These are the works of the flesh. These are the works of the flesh. It's desires made manifest in choices and consequences that are works of the flesh. And Christians were susceptible to this. So we got to back things up. Where do we make our choices? Where do we make our choices? Let me wade now into this long list of unholy desires and look at some of these consequences as we contemplate choosing the path of pride instead of submission. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. I won't read all of them again. It's a long list. But logically, you'll see this list, this list breaks out into sin categories. And the first sin category is unholy sexual desires, which includes, as you can see, sexual immorality or porneia in the original Greek. Porneia means sexual intercourse between unmarried people. Next is impurity, which means unnatural sexual practices or relationships. And lastly, you see sensuality, which is uncontrolled sexuality or debauchery. And so again, as Christians, we look at this and we go, you're not really talking about me in regard to these things. But here I want to challenge all of us this morning. Let me just describe what God did with the gift of sex. God gave those uniquely created in his image, that's us, human beings, the only ones in all the universe that are created in God's image are people. It's us. What an incredibly dignified thing. God gave us an indescribable gift called sex, and his purpose for the gift is to bring forth life. His design for the experience of the gift is to bless, to bless a man and a woman, beautifully created in his image and sovereignly brought together by him. God-centered reality here. There's incalculable blessed physical, spiritual, and emotional connection in his design. And then his obedience standard for protecting the gift from perversions reflects its dignity and worth and then God's holiness as a designer. Then we have God's word, his purpose, design, and standards. It's all crystal clear in his word. Inerrant scripture that comes down to us. So we're without excuse. We're without excuse on the topic of sexual immorality. Jesus said himself this on the Sermon on the Mount, captured in Matthew 5, 27 to 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in, with her in his heart. You've got a continuum implied here in Christ's counsel Lust fed even for a short moments that don't necessarily produce actions, we're still violating God's standard and blocking our fellowship with him. That's the consequence. We block our fellowship with him. We block our growth. We block our sanctification. I'm not saying that temptation is sin. I am saying that feeding temptation because we want more than what God has given us is sin. Where are those lines crossed? Well, 
I would say that in our spirit-led conscience, we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit convicts. We're going to know when the line's crossed. But we try to quibble with God, don't we? Sometimes. And we shouldn't quibble with God over such degrees. It's just undignified to do so. The dignity of our relationship with him shouldn't be one of where's the line and how do I figure out how to get right up to it and not cross it. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? That's childish. It's undignified. Our conversation with God should be in terms of Isaiah 118 that says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Let us reason together. Let's do it in a dignified way. The rest of that verse is, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wood. What a promise. What a promise. I love that. Come, let us reason together. There's just immense dignity in that offer. So even though our culture is hypersexualized and temptation aggressively comes after us, I'm arguing that we are never helpless victims. We see that our Sark's desires for sexual satisfaction outside of scriptural boundaries, they come from pride. And they emerge within us because we're tempted to believe that God isn't good or trustworthy as it refers to what he has or has not given us, particularly in this category. But when we see it, In a dignified way, we'll want to run to the Spirit. We'll want to do what John MacArthur encourages, and I'm quoting again, to be filled with the Spirit, which involves confession of sin, surrender of will, intellect, body, time, talent, possessions, desires. And we have to do this daily. It is not a once a week or once a month or once a year check and reset. Sexual purity must be considered in the long daily war. We have to fight every day. In submission to and dependence on God. Well, how are we doing? How's, how's the church in America doing on this one? I'm going to bring some strong statistics. Because I think we need to be honest about this in our culture and in the church. We're not doing very well as a culture. This is from Conquer Series. It's a ministry dedicated to helping Christians run from pornography. Over 40 million Americans are regular visitors to pornography or porn sites. Did you know that the pornography industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined? That's shocking. Over half of American divorces are involved with one party having obsessive interest in pornographic websites. Children, 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to pornography. This is real. It's everywhere. Not a lot of people want to talk about it. In the church... 70% of Christian youth pastors report they've had at least one teen come to them for help in dealing with pornography in the past 12 months. Almost 70% of church-going men view pornography on a a regular basis. This is where we have to go back to our salvation. We should be honest with God, and we should check our salvation and we should believe that we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And if we're doing these things, we need to get help. It's not just men, it's women too. Last one, 57% of pastors say porn addiction is the most damaging issue in their congregation. So we, I don't know if, you know, these, these statistics are perfectly accurate, but I think they're pretty close and we just have to be honest. And, and realize that what Paul is talking about is shockingly real and worthy of his warnings. All right.
That's sex. Always a tough one. <laughs> Let's move down the list. All right, we're still going downward before we go back upward. Um, so uh, idolatry and sorcery in verse 20, what are these? Do Christians pursue these? Well, in the context of this passage, Paul is referring to specific occult and pagan religious practices. These sins are relevant today. Idolatry is providing an inadequate substitute for God, and sorcery is faking the work of the Spirit. Where does this get us in trouble? Well, as Christians, we start with a desire that it's for something that God has not given us, and we want it so badly that we start looking to experience over truth to justify our behavior and choices. Modern false teachers in the church today tell us we can have health and wealth if we just have enough faith. They tell us we can be miraculously healed from ailments and disabilities with just that much more faith. Come back with more faith. Well, when Jesus healed, he healed completely. We have false teachers that tell us we need some wild experience to to be truly holy and, and we need to be careful about these things. We need to be wary. We need to ground everything we hear in the doctrine of God's inerrant word. Next on the list, we have a long list of relational sins. These sins seek to destroy relationships. It's enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. This is a, we see first a category of destructive attitudes, and then we see how those destructive attitudes cause divisions. These are social sins. They disrupt the community of Christ, what God intends for the church, and they foment discord and division. God calls his church to unity. Unity, unity is so important in the body of Christ. A church split is just, it's just terrible, but it happens all the time. Let me read a couple of verses about unity, and this comes from a huge volume. If you do a search on unity, Verses, 1 Peter 3, 8 says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. The Gospel of John says this in chapter 17, verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And finally, Philippians 2, 1 to 3 I love the cadence in this verse. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being what? By being of the same mind, unity, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul's emphasis on these sins of discord is clear. He lists more of these than in the other categories. I think this is probably the most pernicious and pervasive problem in the life of the average Christian. And again, they arise when we want things that God has not given us. So we go after the people that we think are responsible by accepting God's perfect will for us. So the last two, let's look at those, drunkenness and orgies. These are sins of substance abuse. The orgies referred to in Paul's day were not sex orgies, as the term is used today. They were drinking orgies. I would guess the loss of control can lead to other things, of course. But the text is pointing to a dissolute lifestyle. Escape from reality or seek to have a spiritual revelation not possible when sober. Either one is wrong 
and dangerous. People do this today. Well, again, God promises to provide all we need because he loves us. He died for us. Go back to your salvation and the assurances of it. You're sealed with the spirit. You're indwelled with the spirit. We don't need drugs and alcohol to find peace or respite. All right. We've hit bottom. Now we're going back up. (laughs) All right. So God promises victory in this long war. He does promise victory. And we have to fight it on a day-to-day war footing. Victory is measured in two forms. Two forms. It's in the short run. It's in the fruit of the spirit. The daily run, if you will. It's the fruit of the spirit. It's what godliness produces. In the long run, it's in our glorification. Someday we're going to cross the finish line, Christians. Someday we're going to cross the finish line. And God is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is really a path that's completely opposite to the one I laid out earlier. Remember how I said we want things God has not given us. We believe we can and should go and get them apart from God's guidance or power. And then we make choices that bring consequences. And these these consequences are the works of the flesh. Well, this is in contrast. This path is one of total trust and dependence on God. Pride is crucified Pride is crucified. There is no self here. Our desires on this path are governed by trust in and submission to the Holy Spirit. Given to us, a gift. Such submission does result in righteous intentionality. Good choices. And these choices yield beautiful fruit. And they yield our sanctification. We're bearing fruit while we're being conformed to the example of Christ over a lifetime. Let's look at these verses. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Interesting. It's a grouping of nine Christian graces. And then, as commentator John Stott put it, and I give credit to much that follows here, three of these graces, love, joy, and peace, seem primarily to concern our attitude towards God. For if we count ourselves as converted... Our first love should be for God, right? Our chief joy should be in God, and our deepest peace should be with God. If we think of love, joy, and peace rightly, this requires very intentional God-centeredness, rooted in ongoing daily relationship. And I mean that investment, it has to be daily. We have to read and meditate on God's word. We have to pray. We have to be in fellowship. We have to be confessing our sins to God. As Pete Johnson would say, have you read your Bible today? (laughs) Said another way, a Godward heart is necessary to the realization of authentic love, joy, and peace. God does his part, but we have to pursue God. We have to pursue him. Next, patience, kindness, and goodness form a grouping of social virtues. And if the first three are Godward, these are manward. These are lateral Patience is choosing long-suffering towards those who aggravate or persecute us. It's a choice. Kindness is choosing a Christ-like disposition or temperament after his example to us. And goodness is what we choose to say and do, our speech and actions in relations to others. Finally, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are self-word, if you will. Faithfulness is just hanging in there. It's being true blue, loyal, dependable, unwavering. Persevering through thick and thin. Gentleness is humble meekness of Christ. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Paul does the same thing in 2 Corinthians 10, 11. He exhorts meekness by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, faithfulness and gentleness are aspects of God's self-mastery of self-control. That's the last one on the list. Add them all up, and they're the complete opposite of ceding to the passions of sex, divisions, drugs, or alcohol. So, Godward love, manward patience, kindness, and goodness, selfward faithfulness, and self-control. We see the most stark of contrasts. And a gun set sings, there is no law. Well, we've looked at them both now, so how do we fight and win? How do we, how do we win this battle between flesh and spirit? What is the path to victory? Well, as I uh, read and studied and prayed and talked to Nathan and tried to think my way clear on this, I came down to, it is a war. It's a long war. It's a daily war. And if we're going to talk about war, let's talk about it in military terms. So indulge me. You get it from the colonel. The battle between flesh and spirit, we have to look at it that we have a clear enemy, and that is our sin nature. Let's target that. Let's focus on the sin nature. And pride is the root threat. And we have to resist that specific enemy with an everyday plan. We can't just wake up and wait for stuff to happen to us. We have to be intentional. And we can't divert time and energy away from the right enemy. There's all kinds of distractions out there that would say, oh, you need to unpack your past or whatever. Let's focus on the real enemy. Verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Well, in the long war, our Christian duty, and I think about duty as a military guy, our duty is to crucify the flesh. Crucify the flesh. You have to nail it to the cross every single day. It can't be avoided or ignored or just covered over. It has to be killed. It has to be attacked. It has to be crucified. And we have to trust that we have the support and resources we need to win when we pursue our duty. Just as I had the weight of the United States Air Force behind me when I went to combat, we Christians have the weight of the God of the universe behind us. And God has guaranteed it in our salvation. Your past, although important to your path to to salvation, is just not a drain on your future. It's all about looking forward. You are free of it, and you're supposed to look forward. When I came into the Air Force, I was in. I was in, and I was given the resources, the training, the understanding, and it was all about moving forward. You are a Christian. Move forward as a Christian. We're also equipped to fight and win. The Holy Spirit is our daily commander. It's our daily command authority. And God has provided all the mission support we need. The weapons we need, prayer, scripture, church with its preaching, teaching, accountability. And then the correct approach is to do this dependent on God. Humble submission and dependence. Another really important point here about fighting is that In the fray of it, in the fog and friction of war, you're going to lose some individual battles. But losing battles doesn't mean wholesale defeat in the war. In fact, there's immense opportunity in failure when it comes to come back stronger and with more clarity. 
So you don't make the same mistakes over and over and over again. In the military, we debrief everything. We learn lessons. It's a learning approach. That's sanctification. We should never see ourselves as victims. We should never give up. God promised in Philippians 1.6, let me just read that. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. I assert that all that I just gave you under the military approach this morning does describe what Paul exhorts in verse 25. Let us also keep step with the Spirit. Trust in divine enablement always and in an ongoing way and never in human choice, never in human effort flowing from human choice. Let me just read one final thing from John MacArthur because I think he nailed it here. And then we'll transition to our time of communion. If I as a Christian live in a perpetual state of personal insufficiency, a perpetual state of recognizing my dependency on God, if I live continually thankful for everything he does for me, continually repentant over my sin, continually expressing my love for others, that is going to flow into unspoken prayer to God, and it's also going to cause God to open the sluice gates of blessing, which will result in my joyful response. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time this morning. Thank you for the worship service. Thank you for each person that you brought here. I pray now that as we transition to communion, Father, our hearts would be convicted if we need to confess things to you, Lord, and that we would just uh, absorb this message and go out and seek you in humble submission at all things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.